Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And uh, we've just been to see The Irishman. Massive, massive, epic gangster film that I had no idea was three and a half hours long until how you did, told me. How did you miss that? It's I didn't know anything. over the news. No, because, well, yeah, I don't watch the news. <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. I knew it was Scorsese, I knew it was a big gangster thing, and I knew there was de-aging in it. Um, and I knew, obviously, it was Netflix and... Uh, we just, I, I sort of, I said, maybe there'll be this, maybe they'll show it in the cinema, because they did with Annihilation, which Netflix bought. Yes. Um, that, um, what's his name film? And uh, and the Everyman was showing it, as they did with Annihilation, so we bought tickets immediately. Yes. And then, and then just before going out today, you said it's three and a half hours long. I said, what? <laughs> Who needs it? <laughs> but I am willing to, you know, kind of eat my words... And so I think by the point you by the last half hour, the length is justified. Although okay, I thought I, I mean, I I I I I was entertained throughout. Oh, so was actually. I. Yeah. Um, I mean, I looked at my watch twice, but that was more to get a sense of where are we in this three and a half hour journey, rather than mm. you know that I was bored or you yeah. Know, uh, uh, so um, and. I mean, it's a great... It's, it's one of the sad ironies of life that it's a Netflix film. Because I think it's almost like a film that's made for the cinema. Right? I just enjoyed the audience interaction so much. I mean, I love those old ladies at the beginning. What did they say next to Yeah, so we, we, it's, it's in sofas in the uh, Everyman. And I got seats right in the middle. And the sofa next to us was, um, on my left, was uh, occupied by these two little old ladies who mm. came in. And they were lovely, and they were and they're in their seventies. Mm. Um, and the one said to the other, "You know, if I fall asleep, wake me if I snore." <laughs> and then at the end, because he went out to buy some stuff from Tesco, and I hung around and I was chatting to him at the end. And the one said um, that she had fallen asleep, but because she hadn't snored, she didn't wake her up. So. Oh, because you see, I was I I got kind of kept my ears open, and the thing is, I thought they were responding to everything. They were. They yeah. absolutely were, but one of them also, for a little bit, just had a nap. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> but no, they loved it. And I think one of the things that is really brilliant about the film is how funny it is. It's so funny. You know, it's like people maybe don't give Scorsese the credit for his comedy direction. I thought just the narration of it was brilliant, right? It's almost like he uses every absolute, every aspect. So, you know, kind of there are flashbacks, and then there's almost like a contradiction of you know what someone is saying and then kind of you see somebody very lively and then you know those things about oh he was killed with three bullets in 1980 or whatever right? yeah. in front of his house right and, oh, and this one lived to old age he died of, of uh, prostate, prostate cancer or whatever I mean that was just brilliant really you know it's like you're getting kind of all of these perspectives in this really smooth narration but that is also kind of so complex and interesting and witty I mean you know it's a film that is kind of about, it's a complex film because on the one hand, it's about unions and gangsters and the similarity and the interconnection between, you know, gangsters and unions and politicians, right? And how they're all kind of embroiled together. I mean, the Kennedys kind of, you know, feature in the background of all of this, you know, and on the other hand, it's kind of just funny, really. Mm. It's about, I mean, when it comes to the, the, the ways in which these, 
uh, various people are categorised and organised. It's really about structures of power yes. and how people want to hold on to power and how people do hold on to power. And the thing that was most interesting to me about it, and I suppose we should say uh, spoilers, spoilers are going to come spoilers, up because, yeah. you know, so it, and it's worth seeing it at the cinema. Yeah. Because uh, we were saying just before we went out as well, uh, you know, if three and a half hours is kind of daunting, but you would never watch it uh, on Netflix. You know, no. you'd never you'd never keep your attention on the film for that. And also, just some things will not work. I mean, there's a whole tour de force performance uh, by Al Pacino. Oh, I think this has to be one of his greatest performances, really. Mm. Uh, and, and really, I think I mean you, the performances are, are almost all tremendous in this film. But I think his rises above the rest. Yeah, he steals every scene he's in. He stands above. That's right. And um, you know, there's a whole relay of. Uh, uh, close-ups, me, well, medium close-ups, close-ups, uh, where he gets laughs, yeah, just by looking, just mm. by the way he looks, right, at, at, at the audience in the film, right? And so it's kind of, it's something that's almost not built into the narrative that he achieves, right? Mm. Just through kind of what he does. And it's just absolutely brilliant. Acting and, is reacting. And you, you know, I don't think, well, certainly I have a huge TV, and I just don't think I would get the nuance and the detail of his eyes and his, yeah, to uh. be able to kind of respond like that. And actually, I also don't think I would respond like that looking at it on my own. Yeah, it's almost like you need an audience, mm. you know, an interaction with an audience to respond to things as as lively, as vividly as, as there was at the screening. Yeah, and it was a very willing audience. Yes. Yeah, everyone was there for a reason, you know. They hadn't just gone to see this. Like, it's, it's one of these where, because it's this Netflix thing, or they're only going to let it come out in cinemas for a little bit, you make the effort to see it, and because you've made the effort to be there, you are for it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but uh, so, what I was going to say, I think, was that one of the things that is most interesting to me about this, and why I p- picked up on the last half hour, and why I warned about spoilers as well, mm. um, is that these gangsters get a lot older than they do in most gangster movies. Partly that's that gangsters tend to die, yeah. uh, you know, before they get old. And but the reason that I that I say you know it kind of pays off by then is because f- for most of the film, as much as I was enjoying it, I was kind of questioning where is this going to lead to. It's clearly doing this take you through a life mm. thing, um, and and also clearly it's it's not going to end in Rob, uh, uh, Rob De Niro's death as a young man because the framing device is him in an old people's home yeah. at the age of like eighty. So you know that he's the one who's going to survive. Yeah, and it's and it's his uh, reflections on his past that the film is kind of taking you through. Um, and I, I was really amazed at how the film transforms into this uh, kind of really elegiac, melancholy sort of sort of slow thing at the end about the debts that we build up and have to pay. The like, like, uh, by the end, you're thinking, with, with Rob De Niro sat in his room uh, in his wheelchair with no one around no one you know the priest's not even going to be there for mm. Christmas you think what is a life you know mm. what is this life that he's made himself he's lost everyone mm. basically everyone you know, all the gangsters and friends that he had either they died uh, you know in, in violence or they've died just by getting old too and he's just happens to be outliving them I know but, though, but his family's know, frankly, driven away I, I just suspect if you live long enough that's what will happen people die well yeah and, you know um, though, yeah. But he also driven his family away, and that's that's really uh, yes. pinpointed in the end. Anna Paquin plays his eldest daughter, and the day that um, he kills Jimmy Hoffa, this is what the film tells us. No one actually knows how Jimmy Hoffa died, and so mm. this is kind of based on 
uh, real events, uh, and it's also based on a book mm. um, about those real events. So you know, it's it's uh, there's a there's a kind of uh, alternate or sort of supposed history, I suppose, going on mm. in this. Um, the day that he kills Jimmy Hoffa, though she doesn't know it exactly, is the last day that she speaks to him. It's kind of it's yes. come too far because she knows. Yeah, she yeah. does. Uh, so, and I think kind of, you know, there's a whole aspect of the film uh, to discuss in relation to that. But first, I, I just want to talk about the aspect of age, because when I was hearing that there was all this de-aging technology, mm. and that you see Al Pacino and Robert De Niro as young men, I was expecting to see them as young men. And actually, you really see them as middle-aged men. They're at least in their 40s. Yeah. Probably De Niro you meet when he's in his 30s, but yeah. Well, I would, yeah. I mean, I think he's meant to be in his 30s, <laughs> but really he looks middle-aged. And I did wonder through two-thirds of the film whether the film might not have had other dimensions and been livelier by casting young people, right? So what I was thinking about in specific was in relation to The Godfather and Godfather 2, mm-hmm. where, in fact, Robert De Niro played Marlon Brando, right? Mm. You know, and actually kind of made his career out of playing the same character that Marlon Brando did, yeah, as well. Um, and, you know, I did think, might it not have been better and more interesting to have cast younger people in the younger roles and do it in a traditional way, you know. Hmm. It's an interesting thought. I mean, it didn't really occur to me that that it was a mistake uh, to to have done it this way, or that it might have been more interesting to do it with different actors. I suppose you know. I think um, the the de aging, particularly of De Niro, because he is sort of it's 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 a little bit later when you meet Al Pacino. Mm. Uh, De Niro, you do meet when he's. Yeah, he's like the youngest that you see. Um, it is very smooth, you know. I mean, visually smooth. Like it's there is something fake about it, obviously, um, and it's noticeable. But before long, I was with it, and then I think it helps as well that fairly rapidly the film ages them up a bit as the story moves on. Yeah, and the more the older that they get, obviously, the better and more convincing that they look. Yes, but I do think the film loses something because the thing about this the aging technology is it's only working on faces. You know? Yes, this occurred to me. And the thing about, if you just see De Niro in The Godfather, or actually just in his 70s films, in Raging Bull, you know, when he was young and handsome, you know, there was an, a, a kind of a, an animal quality, a drive, an energy, yeah, that he'd kind of deployed with his body, right? And actually, which was very sexy, you mm. know, and kind of, you know, but in, in this film, it would have been just, you know, part of the drive, part of what explains why... You know, this guy who's a truck driver ends up becoming a gangster, right? You know, yeah. yeah. And actually, what you see, even when he's walking, is kind of like a middle-aged face on an elderly body. Yeah, he. <laughs> yeah, you you can't de-age his gait, and he yeah. moves like an old man. Particularly, I thought I thought that the first moment I thought that was the scene where he beats up the kind of bakery bloke yeah. for um, messing with his daughter, and like he, he kicking him like an old man. He kicks him like an old man kicks someone. You can't. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so I, you know, I did wonder about that, actually. I think, it, I think it's a mistake that the film would have gained something, you know, by casting younger people in the younger parts. I think from the point that Jimmy Hoffa comes in, that the aging technology would have been brilliant, right? Because, and it was. I mean, and it, it was. Work, yeah. yeah, you know, but by, by the point that Jimmy Hoffa comes into the picture, it's actually 10 years after De Niro has, has met the Joe Pesci character and has, you know... Yeah. Um, so... 
I think, uh, so the first hour is without uh, Pacino, mm. you know, and when Pacino comes in, I mean, he really injects, like, kind of power. Oh, a huge amount of life and yeah. unpredictability. Oh, so brilliant. I mean, you know, um, I, I'm, I was just kind of gobsmacked with him because in a way, you know, I haven't liked some of his later performances. Uh, you know, there is a sense in which there are times when he is too much, really. Uh, and sometimes... He, like in Scarface, he's too much and it's great, you know. And sometimes, yeah. like in that film he won the Oscar for, where he plays the blind guy, it's too much and it's not great. Even no idea. Uh, oh, uh, Scent of a Woman? Yeah. Scent of a Woman. The thing uh, about about Pacino, I think, is that he always looks for the interest in a line. He tries to make it interesting. And when you have a bad director kind of shaping his performance, you end up with Shouty Owl, mm. that is the stereotype. But when you have a very good director and a very good script, which this is as is. well, yeah. um, it, it it brings out everything that is re- that is interesting and lively about those lines, and and also it fits the character here. I mean, it really fits the character. Like the character is animated, slightly paranoid, very angry. Yeah, kind of it fits Pacino very well. He's brilliant. I mean, though I must say, the other person I was very, I mean, I was very happy, uh, you know, to see many uh, people. Uh, Joe Pesci was tremendous as well. I didn't even recognise him at first as the very, very, very old version. Yeah. I thought, you know, because then you see him a little bit younger and you go, fucking hell, that's Joe Pesci, really? Yeah. Wow. And what I a mean, joy it was to see him. It was a joy It was a joy to see him. And he's so wily and wise and authoritative, you know, um, and knowing, yeah. Uh, and, you know, kind of, I mean, his part doesn't have as much humour as some of the others. Right, so there's always like kind of you know this wily intelligence at work in everything he does. It was it was like sheer mm. joy to see him. I also love the way the whole thing was filmed. You know, kind of. I mean, I actually don't know how it was filmed. It's uh, on thirty-five mil, if that's okay. what you're asking. Well, then it looks like it was. Yeah. You know, because I mean, the faces are so well illuminated, right? Like, kind mm. of, you know, there are sometimes these close-ups where just the faces have, you know, kind of texture particularly on the women actually uh i love the whole set design i loved you know mm. uh it really does evoke the 70s i mean uh, you know a large chunk of it is set in the late 40s and 50s you know and 60s but then there's also from the mid 60s to the 70s to the 80s mm. there is like this particular kind of look yeah with the women they're wearing like kind of poochy type tops you know very colorful and white you know, when they're stopping on their cigarette breaks on these mm, endless yeah. trips to extort money. <laughs> yeah. You know, I thought I thought that was all wonderful. It's early 70s, that, isn't it? Because that's mm. when they go to, to kill Hoffa. Yeah. Yeah. So... And it does evoke that beautifully. Uh, I do want to take a moment just to disagree with you on the de-aging, that I, do, I think it would have been a loss had the film used different actors as as the younger versions. Because I think, I think, although there is, there is something... Uh, noticeably smooth about it, and you're right that the 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 actors can't do everything physically, you know that they that they really could at that age. I still think like I found it entirely convincing and and, and a beautifully smooth transition because you were talking about the smoothness of the narration, of the film, and it's something that really occurs to me because um, I was thinking about the Wolf of Wall Street because that's three hours, yeah. you know, and I never batted an eyelid at that. So like, I thought, you know, I'm being a bit unfair here, saying three and a half hours. Oh God, how dare he? You know, mm. I, I love the Wolf of Wall Street, and that's three hours long, and 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 that's a film that 
really is unbelievably smooth and it's mm. like you can't you can't think of how f- I, the, the, what I try and think of and what I tried to concentrate on, on here was how Scorsese gets into and out of scenes and makes mm. those transitions and it's funny because you know I'd have to sit down and study it like you can identify scenes and there are some really cracking set pieces um, but in terms of transitions how things move along it's Elegant, so unnoticeably smooth mm. how that happens. And I think that one of the reasons that that works, um, in this in particular, is that he isn't changing actors. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, again, my reference point here is The Godfather 2. Mm. You know, and I think Scorsese could have done something, you know, just with casting younger actors in the Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro parts. Yeah. Uh, Do you not also think that you would be going, going, I'm waiting for the main story to start while I'm not looking at the stars here? No, no more than you're waiting for uh, Al Pacino to appear. I mean, right. you know. Um, and actually, that, would have, that could have given like, some great chance to a young actor, actually. Uh, and, and really, I think the, you know, the part's needed. So, kind of, just, just to be fair, you know, all of those opening sequences with... Robert De Niro meeting him at the petrol station and then how he slowly becomes embroiled in a life of crime and, you know, the killing of people and the kicking of people and so on. It requires a young man, right? And actually, I think a young man would have brought an energy and a drive and a sexiness and a way of moving. Mm. Yeah, that kind of, you know, the the de-aging face doesn't make up for it, you know. Mm. And actually, I think it's kind of slightly offensive, you know. So this is kind of a critique of, of Scorsese in a way because it is... And, you know, he is brilliant with actors. So it surprises me, you know, that he's only paying lip service to what actors do. And actors, even in cinema, are much more than their faces. Mm. You know? It, and, and that no, is really yeah. remarkable. Yeah, it's noticeable. I, it occurred to me that um, there were pro- the story would have probably been told in a different way had these not been 60, 70-year-old men. I don't know exactly how old they are, but, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're old guys. Um, you know, were, were they age-appropriate actors, they would be more by way of action. Because actually a lot of scenes um, involve just walking to a table, sitting down, having a conversation, yes. you know, and, and not moving very much most of the time, which is why that scene where he beats up the guy was, you know, stood, stood out to me, because you saw this guy's a 70-year-old guy um, and he can't move as he should, mm. as he should be able to, um, but but that concentration on dialogue, conversations, just those kind of personal interactions, is where the film shines because that's where I thought there will be there will be something really lost here with mm. the de aging that you you know the smoothing of wrinkles things like that you'll lose the essence of no of of these performances and I don't think it does. No, I agree with that. And actually, it was very interesting how you know De Niro is also brilliant. And he is so De Niro, like you see in a way all his mannerisms and mm. so on, right? Like, you know, it's it is noticeably De Niro, and yet he brings kind of like you know this humor and these layers and this doubt and yeah, kind of you know he's he's really very good at kind of like extracting like everything there is to extract from from that part. Mm. Um, I'm not sure about the moment where he betrays Hoffa though. I kind of. You know that whole sequence, or is there a moment in it you're thinking of? I'm thinking of, well, several moments actually, because it's it's all part of the same scene. 
So the moment where uh, the Joe Pesci character asks him to do it, then the moment that he's in the car with uh, Pacino, the moment where he actually commits it, which I think, you know, and then the moment where he speaks to the Hoffa's wife. Mm. I think all of those moments, I, I kind of, I would have liked more of a sense of guilt or, you know, pain mm. or doubt or... Yeah, because they're, they're, yeah, you know, from the point of view of the narrative, it's a moment of of betrayal. You know, here's somebody who's done so much for him, who he owes so much to, yeah, and he's been asked to kill him, right? So, I would have liked more guilt beforehand. I, I you know, I think it's notable that when they go into breakfast the next day after he's been asked to do it, and they're going to do it that day, he's uh, and Pesci says, "How'd you sleep?" and he said, "I slept like a baby" or whatever. You know, I thought. Well, that's, that, that line's got to mean something, right? Like, what, how can he slip the well? Is he lying? I don't know. Um, and then, from then, it's, it, it, I, I kind of... I believed that he was getting on with it and trying not to think about it, really. He had to do this. Well, And yeah. then that phone call, I thought, was fantastic. I think you do hear in his voice, with the stammering and the stuttering, and not really being able to say anything, guilt and... And unsureness, and then by the time at the end when he's talking to the priest and he says, "Who makes a phone call like that?" You know, he's clearly talking about that phone call. Yeah. And the priest obviously doesn't know what he's doing, but that's when like it, he's he's been living with this for probably twenty years at this point. Mm. You're right about you're right about that phone call. Actually, I take that back. I mean, you do, and actually that kind of slight stuttering and so on that was brilliant. Um, so I suppose you know I still mean from the moment that Joe Pesci forces him to do it. Yeah. yeah. I kind of, I would have liked to see more contradiction, yearning, um, you know, mm. re- yeah. Uh, more of a, of, a, of, a, of a struggle of his conscience or something. Though, yeah. though, you know that he can't, that he has to do it, right? So kind of, but just to kind of indicate that gap between the having to do it and the feeling about having to do it because... Joe Pesci is always saying, I understand, I understand. Mm. Yeah, so I think it would have had a slightly re- a different resonance if you would have seen that that more more clearly from him. But I think you do get it. You but know? just not as much as you would have liked. Yes. I agree with that. Um, yeah. So um, I also mm. thought that this is a film that is made for cinema. Right, and it's going to be a tremendous loss to see it on television because, you know, there are there are scenes, there are all kinds of scenes in the courtroom, you know, outside the union shops, uh, yeah, where at, at the Copacabana, where there are literally like hundreds and hundreds of extra, mm. right? So there is kind of like this staging and these compositions. You know, in which there are, there's a lot, the funeral sequence, you know, there's maybe like 50, 60 people on a, in a frame and sometimes more than that, right? So, you know, you're mm-hmm. kind of, you're staging protagonists in groupings, of large groupings of people. And I think that will invariably also be a loss. Yeah, there's some really beautiful blocking. I love seeing Harvey Keitel. The moment that Harvey Keitel appeared, you think... This is almost like uh, elegiac for all of Martin Scorsese's oeuvre, you know, because when I think of his work, really the, the faces that come to mind are Harvey Keitel's 
and Robert De Niro's and Joe Pesci's, mm. right? And then, you know, there's also a kind of um, brilliant uh, uh, casting, whoever did it. Because again, you see those faces that you see, that you associate, well, actually also with Coppola and the Godfather films, but very much uh, with Scorsese, which are like these squat Italian faces, yeah, kind of, you know, faces of ordinary people, but almost kind of cartoonily so. Yeah, um, so the, the film kind of evokes, you know, a kind of a career and, yeah, and not just, you know, the narrative. And that moment where Harvey Keitel comes in mm. was the moment that kind of crystallized that for me. Yeah. And that's kind of what I thought about uh, about the overall narrative, which I know you just said to ignore, but mm. like that, that, that is kind of what it is. Like, like, I'm not as familiar with Scorsese's films as I could be. I've seen, I've seen a few of them, but I haven't seen his his whole lot of uh, old gangster films either. Um, but, you know, like I said, th- these are people who you don't tend to see as very, very old men. These mm. are people whose stories end in their 40s or 50s, and mm. usually they die at some mm. point. And, you know, and, and the idea of the character looking back is tied up with the film, Jan Scorsese, yeah. looking back at his signature genre. Yeah, and he's and actually one of the things I would love to study this film and not just see it because, you know, I became conscious that um, you know the, the mise en scène is so dense, right? Like, you know, and purposeful and so on. So you know, there were moments. Sometimes scenes take place in front of a movie theater, right? And you're conscious that you know he's paying kind of homage to the period as well as kind of commenting on what's going on. So I noticed the three faces of Eve in the late 50s, right? Mm-hmm. I think the, the moment where they meet Hoffa. And then there was Party Girl, the Nicholas Ray film. Uh, and then The Shootist, which is actually, you know, that that film where John Wayne dies. I think it might be his last film with, you know, Remba Call and James Stewart. Right. Right. Yeah, so kind of, you know, and those are just like little moments that I caught because I was so embroiled in the narrative and the acting that you're not kind of quite paying attention to yeah yeah all the things that are meant to be unconscious kind of in the background uh but i'd kind of i'd love to pay more attention to that as well actually are you are you saying i don't know the films um so are you saying that these films have a commonality in in they are somehow to do with the end of things no 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 not in that sense but you know three faces of eve is about a woman who has three personalities right right and it's kind of yeah um personality disorder right yeah she's different things to different people uh, Party Girls and Nicholas Ray film, you know, uh, also about gangsters, right? So, um, okay. you know, so, yeah, there's kind of, I think there is some, you know, the films are not chosen by accident, mm. yeah? Yeah. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, so I, I kind mm. of, I'd like to just analyze that a bit more closely. Um, you were saying initially that the films are about structures of power and kind of and hierarchies and people kind of, you know, wanting to hold on to them. But is that true just of Jimmy Hoffa or do you see that to be true? Yeah, about I think the it's other? true. I really struck me that it was true of Russ, the character that Joe Pesci plays. I think throughout I mean, he's never one of the big dogs, but he's always someone that is respected by the you know, kind of people around him. And he's someone who knows how to hang on to that position. And you know he's he's kind of he's ready to drop someone, for instance, if 
if they become uh, sort of toxic or or difficult or whatever. Like so, so at the end, you know, he says, "I didn't want this to happen to to Jimmy Hoffa," mm. um, but obviously he didn't have the relationship with him that De Niro's character does. Um, so he's kind of apologetic, but he does say, "I chose him over us. Yes. Fuck him." You know, and that is kind of him throughout. Like he, he is. He survives. He survives, and and not against, but like not against the odds, right? It's not like he's constantly having to look out for himself. He just knows where to place himself. Yeah, he's smart. Exactly. Right. And wily, uh, like you said. And wily, but also humble, mm. right? Because the the contrast between him and Hoffa is that Hoffa's really full of himself, mm. right? Like, I mean, the whole thing about you know people being on time and keeping him waiting and. Yeah, it is. It is about being top dog all the time, right? Yeah, you know. Uh, whereas you know, Joe Pesci operates kind of in the background, like you said. Yeah, he's pulling strings. He knows who's who. He knows what's what, right? But he doesn't also, you know, put his face uh, over the parapet. Yeah, he's not. Yeah, yeah. He's always kind of. He's happy to be background. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it didn't occur to me about there being a thematic relationship between unions and the mob. Um, obviously, they are directly related. You know, Hoffa yeah. is in; uh, he's involved with gangsters. Even if he's he, he doesn't, money, doesn't exactly qualify as one built himself. Built with with the Teamsters uh, uh, pension and, fund, right? You know, so they're clearly <laughs> completely intertwined. But as far as uh, sort of members of unions go, you only see him, um, and you see the kind of uh, the leader of the competing union, played by Stephen Graham. Yes. The Jew that they keep mm. referring to, the little guy. Mm. Um, but you know, you don't see you don't see the structures of the unions as you do the structures of the mob. Well, uh, that's true. Not not to the same degree, but you do see it actually, and you do see all the interrelationships, right? Of husbands and wives having jobs, you know, through the union and in the yeah. union, getting you know, kind of salaries. And actually, I would go further. The film is about the intertwining of politics, the mob, uh, um, the unions, and show business. Yeah, kind of, you know... And show business. And show business, yes. Film? Well, there's a lot kind of said about Vegas, you know, and a lot of the scenes take place kind of, you know, at the Copacabana. Mm. You know, there's comedians, you know, which I think is... Don Rickles. Don Rickles. Played by Jim Norton. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So you know, and and um, I think the person that unites them in a way is Joe Kennedy, who is both the father of a president who ran RKO Studios and who was a gangster, right? right. <laughs> All combined, right? So I think kind of you know, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. The film is a commentary on that, actually. It's certainly intertwined. You do notice every now and again when there's some get together, there's the mayor. Yeah. There, or you know, he's in someone's pocket constantly, and, and there is a mention of that. Yeah. At the very least. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's very it's 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 a kind of holistic view of the way that those structures intertwine and and maintain power, it's and trade a, power. It's such a smart uh, film. Um, it, it's just super intelligent, and and you also see almost kind of different perspectives on a situation. You know, as it's unfolding. Again, I gave the example. You know of the narrator, yeah, kind of the film's invisible narrator, but just by posting, you know, kind of letters, right, kind of, it, it almost, it gives an entire different dimension to what you've just seen happening. Right. Posting letters? Uh, you know, the subtitles, so-and-so got oh, right. shot, 
right? Yeah. So and so died of cancer. You know, so and so was killed in his church or whatever. Yeah, like, like yeah, different ways in which people died all around the same time. I don't know if you noticed, they were all like yeah, late seventies, early eighties, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, what you clarify for anyone who hasn't seen it or isn't going to see it? It's that uh, when when characters, some characters, you see them on screen, and t- typically minor characters. They don't do any major ones, I don't yeah. think. Um, you know, the, the, there'll be a freeze frame, and it'll say, you know, Joe Schmo. Uh, was shot in the chest five times outside his flat August 17th 1982 Mm. let's talk about those minor characters because I think the brilliance of Scorsese is that he brings up these threads and they are minor characters and yet he shows you these minor minor characters in a way that evokes their whole life their whole way of life they're there with girlfriends you know they've got attitudes they've done something and are about to do something else yeah, you get kind of like this textured view of these characters at this moment. They don't just appear and die or something, right? Like, yeah, kind of, you see what they've done, you've seen who they are, you've seen why they're going to die, you've seen the, yeah, yeah. how they've betrayed or, you know, kind of are too full of themselves or are just kind of too volatile, right? You know, and then you see them on their own, you see them in the protagonist, you see them in the nightclub, you see them with their family, <laughs> yeah? So, I mean, I think that's amazing. And because there are so many of these minor characters, you know, so uh, several that stood out for me was, what was he, Show Off Joe, you know, the guy who was, who was killed uh, in the restaurant, who... Oh, I can't remember, but I remember the scene, but I don't remember his name. Okay, so that was one of them. The whole thing about... Uh, the lawyer played by Ray Romano, who is also brilliant, yeah. actually. You know, he just appears throughout the film, actually almost on the sidelines or in the background, yeah? Mm. He's, he, he gets lines only when he's interacting about legal matters with the protagonist, right? You know, but you get a sense of the whole life of this character as it appears throughout the film. You know? Yeah, and one of the framing structures is that drive to his wedding mm. on the way they kill Jimmy Hoffa. That's <laughs> but, right. Not his wedding, rather, his daughter's wedding. Yeah. You know. So, you know, you get the, a sense of uh, De Niro's relationship with his daughters, uh, Pacino's relationship with his sons. Like, you mm. know, it, it, it's, it's actually tremendous, I think, you know, what he does. Like, you know, how he weaves in all of these um, different characters, but whilst evoking their own life you yeah. know, in the narrative and how then that intersects with the main narrative that is the one that you're following the through line for. Yeah, like even the minor characters aren't plot functions. Yes, they are people. Exactly, and it's a it's a it's a network. It's a web of of people yes. in a place, and they interact. It, yeah, no, that is wonderful. And it's really rich. Oh. The other thing that I loved uh, was the music, which is very characteristic Martin Scorsese music. Yeah, it's it's the pop hits of um, I would say I don't know from late 50s to early 70s, yeah? Yeah. That dominate. And actually, particularly that period of American pop, you know, with the girl bands and, you know, really kind of before rock and roll, yeah? Mm. Uh, I don't know if you noticed. Uh, um, well, I suppose in the choices. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, rock and roll was a thing by this point, it's clearly. No, no, but... it was. But what he's choosing... Yeah are, you know, early 1960s pop songs, yeah, in the main. Yeah. Uh, or, or that style of music, anyway. Um, 
So, so I thought that was very interesting. I now can't remember any of the titles, but actually, no. if we take a moment, if we can find that. Well, one thing I was going to say, though, in response to that, actually, um, it didn't occur to me that that this was a sort of jukebox thing going on. Because actually, what really what occurred to me was the score, because there's a score as well as yeah, uh, uh, kind of pop music, um, and also when the score drops out, there's kind of uncharacteristic, I would say, amount of silence. Mm. You know, I think you're really you really expect Scorsese to be backing every scene with pop. That, that, that's what you really think about. Mm. Maybe not so much in Silence, for instance, the 2016 film, but, you know, mm. in the gangster films, that's kind of what you expect. And then, you know, towards the end here, especially, um, there are these longueurs, these silences. I, I suppose the silence really occurred to me um, in the Jimmy Hoffa murder sequence. Ah. Like, there's, there's an awful lot of silence around there. Yes. Um, you know, it was, there may have been a bit of a score at one or two points, but there is a lot of meditative silence. And I suppose that would have been, as we were saying about the the character, not feeling enough or not transparently feeling enough guilt that mm. we would like to have seen. Um, you know, that would, there's an attempt to um, do that through the silence around mm. him. It's so interesting because, so... Um, the songs are you got you have Fats Domino, uh, you have Glenn Miller, which is really forties at the beginning, uh, but then you know Percy Faith, uh, uh, Marty Robbins, uh, um, Johnny Ray, uh, you know they are really kind of um, yeah that 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 period late fifties early sixties, uh, and it's really wonderful. Um, and it ends the music at the end yeah is more like salsa isn't it yeah kind of um, so uh, I don't remember um, anyway I, 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 I love the you mean during the closing credits no not during the you know I think it's almost during the murder where it starts da 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 yeah like oh uh, right uh, I, I, I must say I don't remember to be um, anyway yeah there you go um I also want to think about the about the composition of certain scenes because, like, we've talked about, um, I suppose, the kind of overall structure to the overall themes, um, but there are individual scenes that just absolutely shine, and they are these set pieces. You know, mm. that I referred to where you know these aren't necessarily set pieces of action; these are set pieces of conflict and dialogue. Mm. So, particularly Al Pacino um, and his various uh, conflicts with. The Stephen Graham character, mm. you know, where they have that argument about mm. uh, about you were late, and I want you to apologise to me for what you said when we were in prison, and such and such. And these are these are scenes about jostling for power mm. and position, and and I suppose sort of um, knowing or admitting or not admitting, you know, kind of what your level of power is. And I just think I just think it's true of the Apuccino character; like he doesn't realise how out of the kind of he's become sort of persona non grata basically mm. um, by the time he's out of prison but he doesn't know he seems to not even know that let alone accept it mm. you know and that's what those conflicts with Stephen Graham are about I think and when he sat there at the um, at the awards do for De Niro you know he's on stage because he's been invited there because he's a close friend of De Niro and he's invited to give him this award but it's not his way back into the union mm. it's not his way back into power well, and the the irony is that he thinks he's above all of that anyway. Yeah. You know. 
I mean, he thinks he's there to do De Niro this massive favor, you know, and kind of maybe to chat to a few people, maybe get a little bit of business done. But, you know, he's in the, he sees himself in the position of the Don, the person who is like, you know, kind of doing for others, not the person who's like, yeah, he's above all of that. Yeah. Um, he thinks. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, he certainly thinks... I think he does think of himself as needing to get back into it, though. Like, he knows, obviously, that he's not in charge, because he's not. Well... Wow. Um, you know, so he... So, but I, and Because I think when he gives that speech and he gets people chanting Hoffer, you know, that is, like... Because that's him turning it into, uh, you know, a rally for votes, isn't it? It is. Um, but, you know, he's got this whole thing about the union belonging to him. Yeah. Right? So, you know, he's clearly doesn't have his job back so you know he's not but actually um he still thinks that he wields more power and all of that than anybody else and in a certain sense you get a sense that he does because you know part of the plot point is he's blocking money yeah so yeah. you know i mean he's not without power right but just not the amount of power that he had previously and he's unaware of the extent yeah yeah to, to which, which he's not he's no not lo- he's no longer a player exactly um but I suppose I was getting off the point because I did want to think about about those individual scenes that kind of led me off the path a bit. Like I wanted to think about, I suppose how how beautifully self contained they are that these scenes have stakes and they have winners and losers, mm. and that they are so funny, yeah. hugely funny. And and this is character sort of comedy that comes out of conflict. Um, you know, so Al Pacino getting very pissed off with other people. It's constantly funny. Yeah. I think De Niro being recessive, yeah, whilst also, you know, he doesn't he doesn't say much, he doesn't want to say much. He always wants to smooth the situation. Yeah, he says as little as possible, and when he says something, it is to create a bridge, yeah, mm. in a very understated way. I mean, all of that is kind of tremendous, and it's funny. It, it struck me, actually, because um, we were talking about... Uh, in Maleficent 2 the the male characters in that dinner scene wanting to kind of recede into the background and just wanting to avoid things and I don't think that works at all but it struck me that this is something that De Niro's character does here and I think it's very successful because it's very interesting that he does he tries to be diplomatic he tries to facilitate dialogue and, yes. and keep fight to a minimum and that sort of thing I mean my god you know in the current debate on the Marvel films and this one which I think we need to address okay I mean I do think this film kind of is 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 uh, Scorsese's defense, because you know I think if you take something like the Avengers, and you compare it to this, you just can't. And it's not just because it's a different kind of movie, you know. It's because this film is about something, you know. It's kind of it's much funnier. It's much funnier about more serious things. It depicts a world better. Right, it offers a critique, you know, yeah, that is not, yeah, comparable. So, um, yeah, yeah. No, no, I don't want to say anything more than that. I mean, you know, I'm not. I personally, I'm also not. Say, I love the comic book films, actually, uh, and um, you know, and to me, kind of, they are cinema. They're, you know, they are young people cinema. So, you know, I think the argument that there is that they're not cinema doesn't wash unless you know, you have another idea of what cinema is, mm. right? Because obviously all of this kind of race rests on the foundation of, well, what is cinema? And, you know, cinema has always been 
park attraction, park rides or whatever, right? Like, you know, it's from the beginning of time and cinema has always been commercial. And, you know, so I, I actually don't think for me that uh, Scorsese's problems are with any of that, you know, but it is kind of, you know, to do with uh, seriousness of intent and achievement of kind of uh, complexity. Yeah. Did you read his editorial in, was it the New York Times? I did read that. Because um, I think he spoke a little bit in there about about the idea of being commercial cinema, which 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 is, as you say, like they, films have always been commercial. The and cinema he loves is commercial cinema. Mm. You know, the John we, Ford Westerns. Well, this is the thing I was thinking. like All it, of that, the Hitchcock, you know. You kind of think Westerns, Westerns were so dominant in the 1950s, for instance. Like, he would probably be making those same complaints then. Like, the, the, do you know what I mean? They are, they are as dominant then as superhero films are. Now, I don't think it's a new thing. No, uh, exactly. So, so in that sense, you know, we can disagree, um, you know, with Scorsese, right? Because, and he contradicts himself. You know, there's no more commercial director than Hitchcock, mm. you know, and there's no more commercial director that is closest to, you know, a theme park ride than Hitchcock. Yeah. And Hitchcock's the one he brings up in that article specifically. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, but I also do think that he's got a valid argument mm. when, uh, you know, none of the uh, uh, Marvel films uh, can compare with Hitchcock's best. You know, they just don't. Mm. You know, so I think that, you know, kind of there is a critique. I mean, there's now been, I don't know how many, 20, 30 of those films. The Marvel films are up to about 23. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, and kind of the only one that I would defend in any way is really Black Panther. You know, the mm. others are fun, you know, but they're only fun, you know. And, and I think kind of yeah. The Irishman is fun, you know, but it's so much more than fun. I suppose the central sort of, or the best point that I think Scorsese is making, whether explicitly or not, is the idea that these films are dominant to the point of excluding Everything other things. Else. He Which, talks about the mid-range film, yeah. the mid-budget, mid-range film, not really existing anymore, I think he talked about. I think that's right. And, and, and I think that's, there's truth in that. There is, for sure. Um, so like, it's not so much that these films are so popular they shouldn't exist, but it's that they, they shouldn't be allowed to drive everything else out. Well, two things. A, they shouldn't be allowed to drive everything else out, which they are doing. But also, I do think they lack ambition. Yeah. You know, I do think, you know, so um, I, I do think even within the studio system, the, 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 the people that made the most popular films, you know, they not only had an ambition like Hitchcock to create tension and suspense and kind of take you through this ride. Yeah. But also to, to, to do other things and to do other things with great beauty, you know. So and I don't think that this thing about kind of critically commenting on the culture and so on is or kind of being innovative with the form or experimental with the form uh or or with narration uh i don't i don't think that's 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 true in my view of 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 the marvel films or but the majority of the marvel films mm. as i said the only one i would kind of unconditionally defend is black panther black panther really stands out for yeah. that reason though doesn't it yeah and it, um, you know it's kind of i mean it's it's a lot of films that they've made, right? Yeah. Like, you know, so it's, yeah. Um, and Maleficent, 
<laughs> which we saw earlier today, is, you know, a, an example of that. Yeah, it's 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 a dumb movie. Yeah, it's like <laughs> if if the if the Marvel films are products. Yes. Okay, Maleficent isn't Marvel; it's under Disney. But if the Marvel films are products, then Maleficent isn't even a good product. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> But it's in the same genre, yeah? Big budget, world, really corporate. A sop of, you know, themes of identity and belonging, but it's really a sop, really kind mm. of, you know, very badly worked through. So, I mean, I, I, I do think that this film in particular, and actually, uh, you know, I mean, his whole career as a filmmaker is uh, a shining defense of a particular kind of cinema, which is not the only cinema. But um, he's made a film for Netflix, which is not cinema, less so than Marvel. Well, this thing about what is cinema and what isn't is like so uh, <laughs> uh, fraught. You know, I kind of, um, I mean, I would, ne- I would not say that any of these things are not cinema. I mean, to me, they kind of clearly are. Sure. Right. Um, but it's, not, but you know, it's not being shown in cinemas very widely. But it is being shown in cinemas. Some. But it's li- um, limited release, even in the US. I think the interesting thing, you know, because I have an issue with, you know, people who um, who proudly proclaim that they never go out to the pictures, you know, but, but you know, kind of can't stop talking about movies. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Scorsese basically said, I don't know of a single filmmaker who does not prefer to have his films being seen on a big screen. The ben- yeah, and in a, in a, in a cinema. Hmm. You know, kind of, the benefits are obvious. The social dimension, you know, and kind of the size of the screen and, you know, kind of all of those things. If you think the cinema is an art, then actually size, luminosity, yeah, kind of all of those things matter. Uh, and actually, I also think that an audience matters. But then what that brings me back to is he's made a film for Netflix. But he's made a film for Netflix, um, you know, that is kind of being screened theatrically, that could be screened theatrically in the future. A little bit. You know. Well, you know, I mean, that has more to do with the status of, of exhibition than, you know, with the kind of film that he's doing. I actually think if he had made the film for Netflix in an artistic sense rather than, you know, mm. as a contract, uh, he wouldn't have done it the way that he has. You know, he wouldn't have had those big crowd scenes, you know, because actually they don't, they don't, you don't see them very well in a small screen. But I suppose that's, I think that's thinking around the point though. Like the point is still that, um, I'm trying to think how to phrase it. Like the thing about Netflix showing this theatrically is they're not showing it theatrically nearly as much as they could. They're not showing even, it everywhere. Even in the USA, it's getting a limited release. Sure. And this is a film that, under a conventional cinematic distributor, would have a big, wide release. And sure. It, and it could be a flop. I mean, it cost $160 million. It could be a huge flop. Maybe people wouldn't see a three-and-a-half-hour film. But, but, but On the other hand, it could be that Netflix are throwing away a lot of money by not releasing it as widely as they could. Possibly. Which uh, means that they're making a point. Well, possibly. You know? but, uh, but I think my original distinction kind of stands... You know, there's a difference between how you get your film financed, mm. right? And, you know, whether the filmmakers are making it with a big screen, with a theatrical release and a big screen in mind or not. And actually, you see the evidence in your screens all the time. No, I know, agree with that, uh, the, the, the aesthetic. But he didn't have to agree to make this film for Netflix when well, they Well, how do we know? It might not have been made otherwise. No, but, well, yeah, so he didn't have to agree to make it. With but then that's to say that they wouldn't be made. 
I well, don't understand your point at all. Well, my point, if you my, make it, it can be shown in cinemas, you know, and it can be shown in cinemas in all kinds of contexts. I mean, you know, maybe in five years it, there'll be a retrospective and it might just take place in one city, but you'll be able to show this work. The work exists and it can be shown in a whole variety of ways. It would be stupid to say, I prefer not to make it than to make it, you know, with, with Netflix money. I mean, Look, filmmakers I... make m- movies with gangster money and <laughs> dictators money. What, you're not going to accept Netflix yeah, to make ga- your movie? No, gangster and That's dictator's absurd. money doesn't... Yeah, but the gangster and dictator money doesn't tend to come with the proviso that this is going to be streamed online and shown in cinemas as little as possible. That's the point I'm making. That's why the, this, this question about what is cinema and how important the cinema is is interesting in the context of this specific film because this was made with Netflix money. And I agree, you know, if you, if you, if you turn down the Netflix money and no one else comes in, then the movie doesn't get made, and that's a shame. But who's to say there aren't other projects on the table, there aren't other people he could go and work with on different things? Well... But this specific thing... It was made for Netflix, and he knew that. Okay, but it doesn't matter. It's gotten a theatrical release. We saw it on a big screen in a theatre, and we saw it in Birmingham. Okay, so, you know... It's not the same as if it would have been shown in 3,000 theaters, but it's had a theatrical release. You know, and we saw it, and we benefited from seeing it. We did. And isn't it a shame that uh, so many people won't? I suppose one other thing that we could talk about, which is not Netflix-related, but it is related to the Scorsese Marvel thing, is uh, I remember um, probably 15 years ago when Roger Ebert wrote about video games... um, he wrote that people had, you know, people had tried to get him to play video games for a long time and he would never do it and stuff. And he said, video games aren't art. And this ignited a debate because this was even before gamers got mm. really, really toxic. It's like, how dare you say they're not art? And they said, look at this, look at this, look at this game. And one of the things that he said in his defence, when he, you know, he did a kind of editorial as well, was most films aren't art. Mm. Which I thought was an interesting perspective. Like, uh, if, it, uh, if all video games aren't art, but then, actually, very few films are as well. It's a high bar to reach. It is. Though, you know, I thought John Waters in his talk last night was so interesting, you know, because he, he said something like, oh, you know, I hate these people who just who say they, they just go to movies to be, like, entertained or to, no, to feel good, he said. Yes. It's like, you know, he was saying, I already feel good, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Kind of what I want to go to movies for is to be disturbed, to be shocked, to be made to think in ways that I don't normally think, you know, about kind of subjects that I don't normally have access to. And those are the kinds of movies that I like. And he mentioned specifically you know, Gaspar Noé and Climax mm. and so on, uh, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, he's talked about Irreversible before when he was in this big think interview that I've, that I've mentioned to you a few times. He was asked, what are the most offensive films you've seen? Mm. And he thought up uh, Irreversible. Yes. He said he'd put that like at number one. Well, that's So he clearly, clearly loves uh, Noé. Um, um, but let's end it here, actually, because I want to... Um, go to bed. No, I was thinking, I, well, I want to have um, something... But then I was also thinking, if you know, is there something else we can catch? Oh no, I need to get home. You need to go home. I do okay. need to get home. All right. So let's um, let's wrap up. The, I mean, you know, I suppose I I would have liked to talk about the film even more because it is a really wonderful film, and I suppose for a lot of it, as I say, I was thinking, where is this going to go? And it's not to say that there are things that could have easily been cut. I mean, if you wanted to cut like half an hour or an hour out of this, I would not want to be the guy to do it. Yeah. It fills up its time with a lot of story. I mean, to me, it just it just uh, went by very quickly. It flowed beautifully. I, I actually didn't have your problem of where is this going. Mm. I kind of, I just went with it, really. Sure. Uh, and I was entertained throughout. 
but I would say that that final 30, 40 minutes mm. where where things come to a very gradual close mm. and there is there is all this feeling of loss mm. and and reflection um you know like i say i think the film trans- transforms at that point into something else and it's a, it's a really really surprisingly moving coda to the whole thing well i, say. I was of, moved yes i was as well and it's a wonderful reply to the beginning because actually i don't know if you remember the beginning but i thought oh shit this is like my least favorite type of shot in cinema where you know the camera snakes through in this kind of long shot and you go through all these corridors you know and then it kind of it rests on a side angle on de niro in that wheelchair in that wheelchair you know so i thought kind of you know uh, the end kind of was like a yeah a beautiful reply to the beginning this is what's this is this is how you got here and this is what you've become yeah that opening shot did make me laugh because I thought this is such a good fellow's shot and I, th- I felt well, well, I it felt feel, deliberate I, you know I did feel that as well you know though <laughs> I also think when Goodfellas did it you know it was kind of a different type of thrill than now where you could just kind of carry a camera with you for three hours you know or, or yeah. more <laughs> yeah. so um, but anyway it, but it, did, it did feel like a like a like a homage to himself well, maybe. I mean, certainly, you know, I thought of it with the Copacabana bit. There's, there's also a Copacabana scene in Goodfellas. Mm. So, the, you know, it might be kind of self-referential in those ways that I haven't quite uh, uh, picked up on uh, on a first viewing. Um, yeah. You know, but this is definitely a film that I'll see again when it, when it, when it does come out in, in Netflix. Um, so, you know, if you get a chance to see it while it's still playing in the cinemas, do. It's very much worth it. Yeah, and if you don't get a chance to see it while it's playing in the cinemas, see it on Netflix. Though it'll Better be than nothing. A very different kind of experience. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Jolly uh, good. All right, so uh, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Spotify. Um, <laughs> uh, the social media is Facebook and Twitter, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye bye. <laughs>